So Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24. So I'll begin reading there in the 18th verse. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word, Hebrews chapter 18, or chapter 12, beginning in verse 18. Hear now the word of God. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer, uh, and then we'll hear the preaching of the word. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful that you feed us with Christ as you have fed your people throughout the ages, that you feed us with the manna from heaven. And so we pray, Lord, that you would satiate uh, our hunger, uh, that you would quench our thirst with the outpouring of your spirit, and that we would find peace, that we would find satisfaction, uh, that we would find contentment in your presence through your word and spirit. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Sometimes when you set out on a journey, uh, you get partway down the road, and uh, then you encounter some obstacles. And upon encountering those obstacles, you begin to have second thoughts. And you think, well, maybe we need to turn around and go back home. I was uh, recently watching uh, a documentary uh, where this type of scenario unfolded. It was called uh, 14 Peaks, uh, where this Nepalese uh, mountaineer had decided that he wanted to try to scale all 14 peaks in the world that uh, exceed uh, 26,000 feet. So Mount Everest, K2, and uh, all and so forth, all of the 14 peaks in the world that that do that. The the world record that had been set previously for that uh, was to scale all 14 peaks in seven years. He was going to do it and accomplished it in seven months. And so at one point, uh, as he's going from mountain to mountain, he gets to K2, Uh, which is perhaps one of the most perilous mountains in all of the world, maybe even uh, more perilous than Mount Everest itself. And uh, he had arrived at the base camp, and as he realized, he he was talking to all of the other climbers, and the other climbers were quite distraught because they were all having second thoughts about whether or not uh, they should try to summit K2 because there had been significant uh, increased avalanche activity, uh, so that it was even more perilous, more dangerous than many of them first thought. And so as they're filming the documentary, you see this climber talking to the rest of them, and he said, no, I don't think uh, we should turn around. I think we can, we can make it. And so the next day, he and his team went out, and in the process, they laid out a bunch of uh, static ropes. I have no idea what that means. I just That's what they said in the documentary. So they laid out some more ropes, uh, and they summited K2. 
And not only did they summit K2, but then the following day, the rest of the climbers at the base camp at K2, some 24 climbers, then went and followed in his footsteps, and they too summited uh, the peak of that grand mountain. All of this is to say is that they faced that moment in the journey where they thought, maybe we should turn around. Maybe going forward is too perilous. Maybe the cost is too high. And this was the scenario that faced the recipients of the author's letter here, the the book of Hebrews, is that they had begun their journey, they had begun the Christian life, and as they have encountered persecution, as they had encountered trials and tribulations, all of a sudden they stopped in their journey, they paused along the way, and they thought, maybe we need to turn back. Maybe we need to go home to what they thought was home, which is the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, to go back to Judaism, to the ways they knew, the ways with which they were familiar. And so the, the, the recipients of this letter only saw danger. They only saw peril in their path. They only saw persecution and perhaps even uh, loss of life. And yet the author writes to them as he does throughout this letter and tells them, don't turn around, don't go back, but press forward. Because what you don't realize is that in going back, you are turning around to go back to Mount Sinai instead of pressing forward to go to Zion. And to go back to Sinai is ultimately a path that leads to condemnation. And the only path forward to salvation lies, if I can borrow the language from that documentary, in summiting Zion, if I can put it in those mountain climbing terms. And so what the author wanted his recipients, and indeed he wants us to know, uh, are the stark differences uh, that stand out in terms of the differences between Sinai and Zion. And so what I want us to do first is I want us to, to take a peek and to take a look at the heights of Sinai and first to behold Sinai's terror. And then secondly, I want us to take an, into view and to make sure that we understand the comfort and the peace that God gives to us in Zion. And then third and finally, Uh, I want us to give thought to the idea that we, as the author exhorts his recipients as well as us, is that we press forward uh, to Zion. So let's give thought first to Sinai's terrors, which it's, it's, you know, it's quite providential that we have dark clouds and thunder and lightning peeling around us. It's uh, added sermon illustration, if you will. In in his efforts to dissuade his recipients from going back to the uh, Old Testament ways, the author wanted to remind his recipients as to what it really was like. I think all too often it's the case that we sometimes find ourselves in the midst of challenging times and we begin to idealize the past. If only we could go back to the past. It was so much better back then. We forget that the past was perhaps just as trouble-laden as the present. And even more so than that, we forget and perhaps oftentimes just purge out of our memories the difficulties and the pains because 
in the moments that in which we find ourselves suffering, we think that surely somewhere else has to be better. And so here, what the, what the recipients of this letter had was a selective memory. A selective memory. And the author wanted his recipients to recall in great detail the genuine and true nature of the Old Testament, of the Mosaic Covenant, of Judaism. And so the author takes a cold bucket of reality and he splashes it upon them to awaken them from their theological stupor. And he says in verses 18 and 19, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, and darkness, and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg, so that no further messages be spoken to them. You know, one of the things that we can sometimes do, and perhaps you see this in artwork, uh, perhaps uh, we think about this, is like the recipients, we might tend to idealize Israel's experience at Sinai. Now, on the one hand, it was certainly a blessing, and we don't want to discount that. They were in the furnace of Egypt. They were under the the yoke of Pharaoh. They were in a uh, state of slavery, and God delivered them mightily, miraculously, and powerfully. But yet, as he brought them to what amounts to his temple, his dwelling place there at the foot of Sinai, we also have to recognize that it was a terrifying experience. It was a terrifying experience. You know, so often when I read of people giving accounts of supposedly coming into, a, uh, into an encounter with God, and God speaking to them, and God appearing to them, I wish I could go up to them and ask them, did you fall on your face out of fear and terror? Because that seems to be the majority report when it comes to what people do when they encounter God himself. Whether it's in his angels, or whether it's in the dark, ominous clouds of Sinai. It's surrounded by dark, foreboding clouds, peals of thunder, lightning, blasts of the trumpet. You know, at this point, we're now... At this point in the spring, we're old hats at bad storms, right? I guess this one makes number five, although number five hasn't been as bad as one through four. But as as we've watched, it's like sometimes I'd stand out in my boys' room because it's in the second story and it's got a patio and a little deck and, you know, I can look out the window and I open the door and I would look out on the horizon and you could just see the dark foreboding clouds and... At night, I would be awakened in the middle of the night as you could hear what sounded like unceasing cannon fire as the thunder just kind of rolled on for 30, 40, 50 seconds at a time. And you just wonder, you know, how many bolts of lightning is this? How many peals of thunder is this? But one of the things that makes those types of experiences completely different, and it's only really a small sliver as to what the Israelites experienced at the foot of Sinai, is that these clouds were entirely, and this thunder that we experience even now is an entirely natural phenomenon. We know what it is. We know that it's a weather system moving through. Under the providential control of God, of course. 
What this was for the people at the foot of Sinai is this was the holy presence of their righteous God and our righteous God. And what the author wanted them to understand at this point is everything that separated God from the people, even though he was close to them, he was still, in a sense, ethically far apart from them. You hear him when he says that there was blazing fire, that there was darkness, there's gloom, there was a tempest, there was a trumpet blast. Notice, all of these things convey distance. They're all impersonal. But beyond the fear, God sets a perimeter around his uh, temple mountain to ensure that nothing uh, would, uh, that was unholy uh, would despoil its sanctity. Verse 20, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. God set borders around the precincts of his holy mountain in the same way that he told Moses when he appeared before him, take off your sandals for you walk upon holy ground because he wanted the people to know you are sinful. You are sinful. And the sinfulness of the people only bubbled up to the surface. Because notice, we read there again in verse 20, they could not endure the order that was given. In other words, their desire should have been, no matter how fearful it may have been at the moment, please, O Lord, continue to speak to us. Reveal your word to us. And what did they do instead? But they said, we can't stand to hear any more. You go, Moses. We don't want to hear it. And so we know that the people ultimately were rejecting God's word, not only because of their desire to flee from the word of God, which is in and of itself a bad sign, but because of the events that transpired on the heels of their rejection of God's word. John Newton says it this way in a poem that he has written, The Golden Calf. When Israel heard the fiery law from Sinai's top proclaimed, their hearts seemed full of holy awe, their stubborn spirits tamed. Yet as forgetting all they knew, ere forty days were past, with blazing Sinai still in view, a molten calf they cast. Yea, Aaron, God's anointed priest, who on the mount had been, he durst prepare the idle beast, And led them on to sin. They said, no, we don't want to hear God's word. And what follows upon the heels of that? But the creation of the golden calf and idolatrous worship. Moses, on the other hand, we know reacted differently. But even then, as he ascended the mountain at God's call, he did so with fear. Verse 21, indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. I tremble with fear. Now, at first glance, it may be difficult for us to fit some of these pieces of the puzzle together because of what I said moments ago, which is God delivered Israel out of the bondage of slavery, out of the furnace of Egypt, 
which was undoubtedly an act of his love. Hosea 11.1, when Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And in fact, there in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, the, uh, the prophet characterizes God's love for Israel as in the terms of a father teaching a child to walk. I taught Ephraim, my son, to walk. You know, when you, when you teach your child to walk, it's, it's an amazing thing because you see them take their first steps. There's a bond, there's a sense in which there's a moment in my son's life where he took his first steps and I can vividly remember those first steps that he took. That's a special bond that we have. And that's the nature of the bond between Israel and his people. But yet on the other hand, how do you combine that image of God's love teaching his son Israel to walk with the utter and sheer terror of Sinai. They seem contradictory. And yet, when we contemplate those events at Sinai within the broader scope of redemptive history and its unfolding message, what does the Apostle Paul say about this? He says in Galatians 3.23 and following, Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. God put the terror, the clouds, the blazing fire, the, 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 the trumpet blasts to tell the people you are sinful. And he says, I am holy. And the only way that you can dwell in my presence is if you seek me through the promise that I have given through the seed of the woman, if you seek me through the sacrifice of the Messiah. That one seemed a little bit closer. <laughs> My kids start counting. One, one thousand, two, one thousand. You know, I mean, it's like, I don't know about you, but that type of thunder and lightning, it frightens me. And I get to praying, oh Lord, protect me. Well, what the people of Israel were supposed to do is to be frightened, frightened by that terrible, uh, awe-inspiring sight at Sinai and cry out to God, Oh God, protect me from myself. Protect me from my sin. Give unto me the promises of salvation that only come through you and through your anointed. That's what they were supposed to do. And they didn't. Instead, they said, they stopped up their ears and they said, speak no more. All we want to do now is engage in idolatry. And so the author says, take a good look and consider the terrors of Sinai. Because that's where you're headed. But secondly, what about Zion and Zion's comforts? Notice how the author contrasts the terror of Sinai with the, the comfort, the peace, and the joy of Sinai. What he says in verse 22, and here he says, but. In other words, huge contrast here. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. This is a massive difference. Massive difference. Notice, they don't stand at a distance. There's not blazing fire. There's not darkness. There's not gloom. There's not tempest. There's not the loud blast of the trumpet. But rather, he says, you have come to Zion. You are within the confines 
of God's mountain. You're in the midst of the angels in festal gathering. They're not wielding swords of judgment as in the Garden of Eden as they guarded the way to the tree of life. No, they're, they're dressed in their robes, if you will, of celebration. And if they were dialed in to the, the frequencies coming out of the Old Testament, they would have known that Zion is a special place. Zion is a place of the dwelling of God and his anointed. Psalm 2.6 says, for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. It was a source of comfort for the people of God. Psalm 20, verse 2, may he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. It's the place from which the Messiah would reign in the midst of his enemies. Psalm 110, verse 2, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Moreover, this would especially be, I hope, a source of comfort for the recipients of this letter in the midst of their persecution. Because according to the Old Testament, Zion is the city with unmovable, unshakable, unbreakable foundation. Psalm 125, verse 1, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. What a difference. On the one hand, we can see that Sinai holds everyone at a distance, so much so that if anything unclean, even a beast comes near the mountain, they are to be stoned and and to be put to death. Whereas he says, you have come to Zion and you can almost sense the embrace with which uh, the author of Hebrews says, the people of God enjoy and know. Because Zion is comfort, Zion is peace, Zion is a fortress for the people of God. And the author confirms these Old Testament truths when he describes Zion here in verse 23 as the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. He says it's the place of the firstborn. That's all of us. We are all considered male and female, uh, Jew and Greek, slave and free, firstborn sons. That means heirs. That means co-heirs with Christ of all of the blessings that come with salvation. We have come to God, the judge of all. In other words, the God who has judged you righteous in Christ, the God who will judge the wicked in justice. You have come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. In other words, at this very moment, at this very moment, we, the saints, those of us who are in Christ, are at the present moment in Zion, in Christ, united with all of the heavenly host as they worship before the throne of God, as they are gathered with the angels, as they all bow and cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty and the earth is full of his glory. He says, this is the place to which you have come. Zion's description stands in stark, comforting contrast to the the terrors of Sinai. Yes, Sinai was a manifestation of God's grace, but God's intention was to drive sinners from from, from Sinai to Zion. And the recipients of his letter were trying to go back to Sinai. The only way that Sinai could ever become a blessing for us is if we look 
to the one who has fulfilled the law's demands. And this is why the author here says in verse 24 that we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He says, don't turn away from Christ. Don't turn away from his shed blood that gives you that righteous status that enrolls you with the rest of the firstborn saints that grants you entrance into Zion. You know, the only way that we become one of the members of the assembly of the firstborn is by trusting in Christ, as the author has made clear throughout his epistle, but especially in chapters 8 through 10, as Jesus is the final and ultimate sacrifice. Only his shed blood and obedience gives us access to the comforts of Zion and dwelling securely in the presence of our triune God. I have to say that when I originally planned this sermon, I didn't intend to quote John Newton three times, but this is John Newton quote number two. When he says in his, you could say poem, but of course his hymn, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder, Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood. He has brought us nigh to God. The author's recipients thought that they were at that point in the journey where it was too dangerous to go forward and they wanted to turn around and go back. They thought that the Mosaic Covenant and Sinai would give them peace, comfort, and security. In one sense, this reaction is understandable as they wanted to return to what they knew. They also thought, and probably rightly so, that if we turn around and go back to Judaism... We won't face any more persecution. But at the same time, what they weren't able to see is that while they may be able to please their fellow man and turn down the fires of persecution, they would draw the ire in the judgment of God. They were wanting to return to the ominous clouds of Sinai rather than to bask in the glorious light and warmth of Zion's cloudless skies. So this brings us to our third and final point, which is drawing near. The author's counsel places us a clear choice before us and before the recipients. Which way did they go? To which mountain did they turn, Sinai or Zion? I hope that the choice was clear for them, as clear as it is for us. Going back a little to the 10th chapter of Hebrews in verses 21 and following, remember what the author wrote there. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Our path is clear. Except there's such a big difference in that the the mountain climbing team that decided to press on to summit K2 may have made a foolish decision. It's one of those decisions that it worked out that time. It may not have the next. 
That, that's a perilous journey. That's a perilous mountain. Fraught with pitfalls and death at every corner. But not so as we come to Zion. Not so when we come to Zion because at the end, to come to Zion is to see Christ. He who shed his blood for us. He who died for us. To come to Zion is to come to our Heavenly Father who has loved us so much that he has given us his only begotten Son. To come to Zion is to know the power of the Spirit and the conviction that he brings through the Word, the comfort that he brings in the midst of troubles, the assurance that he gives us that our sins are forgiven and that our Heavenly Father watches over us each and every step of the way. It may seem as if things are unsecure and unstable, especially when we're in the midst of difficult times. In the case of uh, the recipients of this letter, in times of persecution in our own day, whether, again, it's the, it's the trials that we have in sickness, whether it's in financial hardships, whether it's in, in times of severe illness, or whether it's in times of national unrest or even international unrest. You know, it's like with things in the news of uh, the, the president of, of Ukraine saying, be prepared for nuclear war, that, that can be a, a, a very unnerving thing to read. And so what are we to do? The psalmist says this in Psalm 11, verse 4, which I think is taken from the same line of counsel that we find here in Hebrews 12. The Lord is in his holy temple The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. When it seems as if the foundations have been destroyed, the counsel of the scripture speaks with one voice. Seek our triune God who sits upon his throne in Mount Zion. And that is where our sure foundation rests. Our God reigns. And he has installed his king in Zion. Why do the nations rage, the psalmist says in the second psalm, and the peoples plot in vain things? The the, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. It doesn't matter if it's Vladimir Putin doesn't matter if it's Kim Il-jong or Kim Jong-il, sorry. doesn't matter who it is that rattles his saber. It doesn't matter who it is that speaks ill of the Christian faith. It doesn't matter who it is that claims to be greater than God, to try to threaten God's people. It doesn't matter what it is that is trying to strike fear in our hearts or to try to move us off of our rock-solid foundation. Our hope lies in Zion. For my third quotation from John Newton, he says here in his well-known hymn, Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God. He whose word cannot be broken formed you for his own abode. On the rock of ages founded, what can shake your sure repose? With salvation's walls surrounded, you may smile at all your foes. Beloved in Christ, 
in the midst of all of our trials, whatever they may be, our hope lies secure in Zion. Zion, founded upon the work of Christ. Zion, which gives us salvation. Zion, which gives us forgiveness. Zion, which pours forth the love of our triune God. Zion, which gives us the fellowship of the saints, not even with the saints that are here, but even with the saints that have gone to stand in the presence of God and to worship him. Zion, that fortress, that respite for the people of God that imparts the peace that surpasses all understanding. I quote with the words of Psalm 48, which is the psalm that speaks of the joys of Zion. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Amen. Let's bow together and pray. Father God, we are grateful for the hope and the place of rest that we have in Zion, a city given unto us in your grace, founded upon the work of Jesus Christ, he who has hushed the law's loud thunder and inhabited by your Holy Spirit, who imparts to us comfort, peace, faith, forgiveness, and joy. We pray, O Lord, that you would take away the scales of our eyes, that we may see that in Christ we have come to Zion, that we are gathered even now in your presence, that we are there with those enrolled as the firstborn of heaven, that we are gathered in the midst of the angels in festal robes, that we are gathered in your presence, O God, and that at this very moment we are joined with heaven, worshiping you. O Father, we pray that we would always seek the peace of Zion, that we would always seek its sure foundations, that you would help us to know, O Lord, that Zion is immovable, unshakable, unbreakable, O Lord, and that if we are ever tempted to turn around and to go back, thinking somehow that we can climb Sinai's heights apart from the all-sufficient work of Christ, we pray, O Lord, that you would forgive us of our doubts, that you would turn us around and that you would put us back, put us back behind the walls of Zion, that we would rejoice in your presence, that we would encourage one another to good works, and that we as your people would worship you for all of these tremendous blessings that we receive in Zion, your holy hill. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen.